Well, guys, welcome to week nine of our series, Thy Kingdom Come. This week, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we try to take this whole topic of the kingdom of God and make it practical for our lives. And so this week in particular, we're going to deal with this issue of kingdoms, the kingdoms of men, and how they stand in direct conflict with the kingdom of God. Uh, you don't have to be... Uh, a social scientist, you don't have to be a theologian to understand that we live in a day and age where there's all kinds of different ideologies that um, are alive and well in the United States and really in the world. And we face them every day. And I was thinking about this, this, this week and I, I created this uh, a little chart that I'm going to show you in a second, but it's based on this idea that we live in the kingdom of God. I think we've established that fact now. We as Christians believe that we live in the kingdom of God and we believe what the scriptures teach us about that kingdom. Over in Daniel 4.32 it says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. So we believe that God reigns over this world and He reigns over every kingdom that has existed and exists to this day. We know that He changes the times and the seasons. In other words, he's, he's in control over creation. And He removes kings and He sets kings up. He puts them on the throne. He can take them down from the throne. And that includes good kings and bad kings. That includes good presidents and bad presidents. And so God is in control. We know from Romans 13.1 that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So once again, we believe as Christians that God is ultimately in control. He is over all things, all governments, whether they be um, a form of democracy, whether they be some form of despotism, He's over all. And, and then we have to think about this, that the Lord, the Creator God, who we looked at in week one, who made the heavens and the earth, has His throne in the heavens. That doesn't literally mean He sits on a literal throne, but that His domain is over all. His rule and reign is over all. He rules over everything. But the truth is, as believers living in the 21st century, during this age in which we live, we wrestle with, but what about all these kingdoms? If He indeed rules over all, if indeed He puts men on their thrones, why do we have so many seemingly really bad kingdoms ruled over by lousy kings? What's going on here? And how are we to rectify this as believers living in this day and age? There seems to be more and more kingdoms and kings, wannabe kings, wannabe rulers, even in our own country, we have so many people who want to be in government for all the wrong reasons. They want power and they want prestige and they want prominence, but again, for the wrong reasons, for the wrong end. Everybody, it seems, wants to rule and reign. It's true here in America. It's true, true around the world. And what we see are these countless ideologies that, that are everywhere. And we, we talk about them, we read about them, they're all over the news, and they seem to be proliferating. They, they, there seem to be more than ever. And I put together this chart to just kind of give you an idea of just how many ideologies we're dealing with. These are all alive and well today, from communism to progressivism, nationalism, Christianism. Um, there, there's so many different isms out there. We're literally drowning in a sea of isms. Everywhere we turn, every time we pick up the newspaper, if you still read the newspaper, every time you look at social media, you, you hear about one of these isms raising its ugly head and propagating what it believes to be the solution to all that faces mankind. It's interesting, in 2015, Merriam-Webster Dictionary made the word ism, which is really a suffix, it's not even a word, I-S-M, they made it their 2015 Word of the Year. Here's what it means. A distinctive doctrine, a cause, or theory. Now, it's important to understand that at the end of the day, all these isms are theories. They're man's attempt to come up with a solution to the world's problems. They're theories. And they get put into action. And as they get put into action, it's revealed whether they hold truth or not. 
but they're a doctrine, they're a thought process, they're a theory, they're an adherence to a system or a class of principles. So first and foremost, an ism is an ideology, it's a theory, it's, it's man's attempt, once again, to come up with a solution to the problems that face the world. So isms are really nothing more or less than an ideology. Well, what's an ideology? An ideology is a manner or the content of thinking characteristic to an individual group or culture. So a particular individual has an ideology, a way of thinking, a way of processing the events of their life, the events in the world. It's the way, you might think of it as a worldview, a way of kind of understanding how things are happening. And that can apply to an individual, a group, or even a culture at large. The problem is because there are so many different individuals who make up a culture, there are just about as many ideologies. Ideas, thoughts, theories about how the world functions. It's a systematic body of concepts, especially about human life or culture. So that's what an ideology is. It's pretty simple, it's pretty, pretty easy to understand. But the problem is an ideology, according to Colin Slowey, is an active intellectual framework tied to a particular social and political end. Now you gotta think about that, what's he saying? He's telling us that these ideologies, these man-made theories about life are really intellectual ways of processing information, processing the world in which we live processing the different things that happen in the world. What we as Christians would call sin, for instance. How do they process sin? What do they do with all the things that happen, war and inequality and injustice and racism? What do they do with those and how do they provide a solution to them? That's what an ideology is all about. And so that's why we see so many of them. And there's five characteristics about ideologies that I think are really important for us to understand. First, they're all comprehensive in nature. What does that mean? They pro profess to explain everything there is to know about mankind, the human experience. They're comprehensive. They, they, they through their ideology, try to make sense of everything that is going on in our world in its entirety. Secondly, they're goal-oriented. They have a mission they're trying to accomplish. They propose, pro, propose and promote a desired state of affairs when it comes to society. They, they want to put something in place that will change the way in which we live, the circumstances in which we live. And they teach that it will be accompanied by struggle. In other words, it's not gonna come easy. To change the current state of affairs, you're going to have to work for it, even fight for it, and there's only one victor in this war of ideas. That's why there's so much tension in the world today, because every one of those ideologies, whether it's socialism, Marxism, conservatism, progressivism, all want to win. They don't want to share the glory. Their idea is the only idea, and they're willing to fight to make sure that their idea wins. And it requires commitment. Commitment on the part of those who are adherents to that ideology. They have to constantly prove their loyalty. And if you prove disloyal, you're out. You're kicked out of that ideology. You're no longer part of the system. And so it takes struggle. It takes commitment. And they're all intellectually based. And this is really important. You can take every one of those ideologies on that chart that I created, and every one of them at the end of the day are intellectually based. They're typically led by people who are well-educated, college-educated, multiple degrees, and they come out of the world of academics. Academia has so extremely influenced most of these ideologies. If you look back at even communism, Marxism, Leninism, the, the men who started those ideologies were well-educated, well-read men with university backgrounds, and many of them were professors, teachers, writers, authors, they're well-educated. It's an intellectual pursuit at the end of the day. And, and this all comes from a um, document from Maurice Cranston, who is a professor of political science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. In other words, this is not a Christian's view of ideologies. This is a secular view of ideologies. So there's five different characteristics.
But at the end of the day, here's what jumps out at me. An idolatry is ultimately a form of, or an ideology is ultimately a form of idolatry. See, every one of these ideologies is attempting to replace God. How? As the solution to man's problem. They, they eliminate God and they put in His place all of these ideas, these theories about what's wrong, you know, who are we, how did we get here, what went wrong, and what's it going to take to fix the problem, but without God. So, in essence, they're forms of idolatry. I love this from David Cowsis. He He's written a book called Political Visions and Illusions. Now, he is a believer, but he's also a political scientist. And he says this, I view ideologies as modern types of that ancient phenomenon, idolatry, complete with their own accounts of sin and redemption. Now, that's huge. What he's saying is that when he looks at these ideologies, and again, across the board, they all have their own form or explanation for sin and redemption. Now, they're not going to call it sin. Uh, they're going to call it injustice. They're going to call it racism. They're going to call it whatever it is that they're against, capitalism. And, and they're going to come up with what is the redemption plan to fix that problem. So at the end of the day, they're a form of idolatry, another form of God. So Colin Slowey goes on in his article, he says, if we find our meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in an ideology one of these isms, then that ideology and not our faith will become the guiding focus in our lives. Now, he's writing to Christians. This gentleman is a Christian. And he's telling you and I as Christians in this culture in which we live, this day and age in which we find ourselves, if we end up finding our purpose, our meaning, and our satisfaction in any ideology, we run the risk of letting it replace our faith in God and His hope, and His plan of salvation. In other words, we come up with another God, another good news, another gospel. And we'll talk more about that in a second. So how does the Christian reconcile all these ideologies? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that every one of them, at the end of the day, appeals to the heart and the head. You know, we, we, we know they're intellectually based. They're theories. Um, they're, they're a form of thought that is meant to appeal to the intellect, and yet they also influence our emotion and not just our intellect. That's why they're so volatile. That's why we fight so, so hard for our ideology to win, because we get emotionally involved in it. It starts as intellectual pursuit, and then it ends up in this heart pursuit where we have to win, and we get so engaged and charged up about our ideology winning the day. Remember, there can only be one victor in the war of ideologies. And so what they do is they offer a physical solution to what at the end of the day is a spiritual problem. We know as Christians that the problem mankind faces in whatever form it takes, whatever symptom it manifests, is at the core a heart problem. It's a sin problem. But they take it and they make, they make it all about, it's an intellectual problem that requires intellectual thought and answers. It's, it's a physical solution. If we can just pass this law, if we can just institute this particular um, plan, it will rectify everything that we face. And so in essence, they make the ideology a replacement for God in the lives of men. And that's why it's so important for us to understand how dangerous ideologies can be because ultimately what they're doing is they're replacing redemption with some form of revolution. In other words, if society is broken, it needs to be fixed. And the best way to fix it, fix it is to revolutionize whatever is going on. We need to make changes. So right now, today, there are people who are trying to radically change the way society looks. There's another group who's trying to stop them from doing that and trying to get power so that they can revolutionize and change whatever they put into place. It's all about change. It's all about control. It's all about power. And so what I want to do is look at some scriptures in the New Testament that might give us some insights into how are we as Christians to deal with these ideologies in our day. 
First and foremost, how do we recognize them as what they are? And then what are we to do about them? So I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And listen to what Paul says. He's writing to believers living in Corinth, which is a Greek community. They're Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ. They've come out of a pagan culture. They're surrounded by a pagan secular culture. And they're suffering because of it. And he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve with his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He goes back to the garden where we started week one of this whole series. And he talks about how Satan deceived Eve, how he came to her and he lied to her. He said, surely God had not, not said. He says, you will not die if you eat of that fruit. But if you do eat of it, you'll actually become as God. See, he deceived her. He lied to her. He came with a different proposition, a, a different truth claim other than God's, and he deceived Eve. And he goes, I'm afraid you're going to be deceived in the same way from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Your thoughts will be led astray. That's the danger of every ideology is that they're coming to us and they're attempting to lead us astray from what? From the truth, the truth of God. For, he says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's basically telling these people that you're receiving information disguised as truth, which is anything but the truth, and you're readily accepting it. So he talks about three things, another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. He uses two different Greek words. He uses alos, which is different, an other than. He uses heteros, which is um, a distinctive, distinctively different item than the one you receive. So another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. But what's he really saying? And how do we apply this to ideologies? Well, it's really interesting. When he talks about a different Jesus, he's basically saying, you're accepting a different form of salvation. You run the risk of listening to this truth claim and accepting it as a different way of salvation. The name Jesus literally means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. He is the form of salvation. And he brought it to us through Jesus Christ. So he says, you run the risk of listening to a different form of Jesus, salvation. Salvation from God, from a different source. See, ideologies are offering you and I a different Messiah, a, a different way of redeeming the culture. Remember, we've talked a lot about how the Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for the Messiah, this Savior, this, this King, this ruler who would fix all their problems. And that still exists today. We all want some kind of Messiah, either in the form of a, a leader or some kind of ideology, some kind of political plan that will fix the world's problems. And they're promoting a different source of deliverance. That's why they're so dangerous, particularly for Christians. And all of these ideologies, whether we realize it or not, have infiltrated the church. And that's why this particular lesson is so important for us to hear. Because after the last year and a half, the church has been so deluded and polluted by many of these ideologies masquerading as truth. Well, what about this different spirit that he talks about? It's a different form of empowerment. What, what's important to understand is that Paul uses the lowercase form of pneuma or spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit within us. And that spirit is literally the rational power that we have to think and feel and process how we make decisions. Every one of us has within us the capability of analyzing something and making a decision, either right or wrong, good or bad. And he says that we run the risk of looking for a different form of empowerment or power, a different source of power, not the Holy Spirit given to us by God, but either our own intellect or the intellect of someone outside of us who's helping us process information. So what we do is we deify human intellect and ingenuity. And again, go back and look at these ideologies, and particularly how many of them, when they first came into being, 
they, they took people and confused them with information and got them to buy into their rhetoric and to basically worship their intellect and ingenuity. Look at how we're going to fix the problem. Look at how we're going to remedy all that ills mankind. So it's a different source of power and a different gospel. What does that mean? Well, it's a different form of hope. At the end of the day, the gospel is the good news, right? It's about the good news of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. But these ideologies come with a different good news, a different gospel. See, ideologies offer alternative salvation stories, so to speak. How do we save mankind from all that it faces? How do we save mankind from oblivion? How do we keep ourselves from ruining the economy or ruining ecology and, and destroying the earth? And, and guys, all those things are important and we should care about those things because God cares about those things. But they are not going to ultimately be the source of our, our salvation. But that's what these ideologies offer and all apart from God. That's, that's the key point we have to keep going back to. These ideologies may have truth in them, but they've re removed God from the equation. Everything they offer is essentially apart from God. Now, this is another secular doc document. It's the Gifford Lectures. And listen to what it says. This is not a Christian speaking. He says, the so-called secular ideologies may lack a sense of the transcendent or of spirituality in the traditional sense. Their purgatories or hells and heavens lie on earth, the heavens being not above but in the future. But they too feed on myth and doctrine and mobilize people's feelings with a sense of purpose and sacrifice, commitment and identity. So what's he saying? If you think about, about it, these ideologies, many of them create on earth a, a picture of hell. Hell is the current circumstance. Heaven is the future remedy. We can fix this thing. It's broken. We need to replace this with this. So everything is on this plane. And that's, again, what makes them dangerous and also what makes them so appealing because everybody on earth knows that something's broken. Everybody on earth is looking for the fix. And so when intellectual people, articulate people come and they propagate their theories of redemption, we're prone to want to listen. We're prone to want to know what they have to say in the hopes that maybe they're right. Well, Paul goes on in this letter and he says, what I'm doing, I will continue to do. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. I'm going to keep doing what I have been called by God to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, Paul's getting the people he's writing to, these, these believers in Corinth, to understand that I'm going to keep doing exactly what God called me to do, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, so that I can show you the difference between what they're claiming See, they're claiming to preach on the same terms, on the same level, offering the same solution, but in a different form. In other words, redemption, but a different kind of redemption and all without God. But it's similar, but it's radically different. And that's why it's so important for the church, believers in the church, to recognize this. Every ideology, regardless of which one it is, has a semblance of truth attached to it. That's what makes them attractive. They're not all lies, but they're a little bit of falsehood with a whole lot of deception. So we need to understand that. None of them offers the truth, the way, and the life. They can't. Apart from God, they can't. And so they may offer this level of ascendancy that we, we know the answers and we're smart and we've solved mankind's problem. In other words, we're like God, and they may offer an ex exclusivity that we're the only way. See, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And some of these ideologies are basically saying the same thing. We are the way. We are the truth. We are the life. But they're not. Why? Because they've kicked God out of the equation. They've eliminated Him. So at the end of the day, their mission is neither divine because there's no God involved, and they're not efficacious. They will never be effective. They, were, they will never accomplish what they promised to accomplish. They can't. It's impossible. 
So ideologies may sound great, their truths may sound good to the ear, but at the end of the day, because they've kicked God out of the equation, they will never accomplish what they say they want to accomplish because they are the plans of men masquerading as the will of God. They would never say that, but they're, they're playing God. They're telling you and I and countless millions of people on this planet that we are the solution to your woes, to all your cares, all your concerns, if you'll only let us do what we came to do. And then Paul goes on, and this is really fascinating to me, and it's so relevant to our day. Listen to what he says about these men. He says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now you got to keep in mind that Paul is writing to the church and he's talking about false teachers coming into the church and, and really teaching falsehood, lies, false doctrine. But I want us to look at this and realize this is exactly what's going on in our culture, our culture at large, by these propagators of false ideologies. Look, look at his descriptions. He says they're false apostles, they're pseudo-apostolos, they're it's literally false messengers, deceitful, lying messengers. Now, this is true of those people coming into the church, but it's just as true of people in our culture who are propagating these lies, these half-truths masquerading as ideologies. They're deceitful. They're liars. They're falsely claiming to be the bringers, the bearers of good news. But it's not good news. It can't be good news because... God is not a part of it. Any ideology, regardless of what it is, that leaves out God is ultimately idolatrous. And see, guys, we have to understand that, especially as believers, that we would allow any of these ideologies, in whatever form they take, to take the place of God is so dangerous and so deadly to the gospel, to, to, to the goal that we've been given by, by God to share the good news of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. But many of us spend more time propagating ideologies than we do the good news of Jesus Christ. It's subtle, but it happens. And ultimately, they're all deceitful and destructive. They will destroy because they're based on lies. They're based on falsehood. They're based on a truth other than the truth of Jesus Christ and Him alone. So he also calls them deceitful workmen. Well, what does that mean? It's actually two words in the Greek, and the first word has to do with those who deceive others. They deal deceptively with those around them. See, we can't lose sight of the fact that all of these things are at their core deceptive in nature, because in order for them to work, they have to lie. They have to deceive to get people to buy in. It's fake news, so to speak. We have the answer. And they're also promoting themselves as laborers on your behalf and my behalf. They're the hired hands. They work for you and I. How many people have we heard running for public office who say, I'm here to serve the people? And then when they get into office, what do they do? They serve themselves. It's all about them. They suddenly forget about who voted them into office, and they worry more about themselves. They, they claim to be beneficial and sacrificial. If you'll vote for me, I'll meet, you, I'll meet all your needs. I will serve you faithfully in Congress, in, in the Senate. What, whatever you need, I will stand by you and for you until they get elected. Because... While they say they labor for the common good, they're really in it for themselves. They're self-serving. It's, it's what can I get out of this? The power, the prestige, the money, the influence. That's why, again, they're dangerous and ultimately deadly. They're deceitful. So what's true of inside the church with false teachers is also true all around us. In the culture at large. And he goes on and says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's the deceiver. He's the father of lies, according to Jesus. And we are surrounded by his children. They're all out there in the culture. And if we're not careful, we're allowing them to come into our fellowship and affect the way we think. 
So it's no surprise, Paul goes on, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This, this phrase is fascinating and, and so appropriate for the time in which we live. Servants of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, again, it's two Greek words. It's, it's diakonos, where we get the word deacon, which literally means a minister or a, a servant. They're a servant, that's the way they sell themselves, of what? Righteousness. Well, what kind of righteousness? Godly righteousness? No, because God's out of the picture. It's, it's integrity. It's virtue. It's purity of life and rightness. Again, just think about all the political ads you've seen in your lifetime. Everybody sells themselves as right and pure as the driven snow. Vote for me. You know, the other guy's the enemy. She's, she's the one you should avoid like the plague, but not me. I am full of integrity. I am full of virtue. I represent purity of life. But see, they're, once again, they're false. They're fake. They sell themselves as servants of righteousness, offering correctness of thinking and feeling and, and acting. Just, just look at me. I'm, I'm the answer to all your problems. I'm that Messiah you've been looking for. And justice and virtue becomes their calling card. Those two words are so beaten to death in, in our lifetimes, it's, it's, it's nauseating. Justice and virtue. But none of them can offer it. Yet they all claim to, to be ministers of justice. But what justice? What kind of justice? Where do they get the definition of justice? I guarantee they don't get it from the Bible. It's their own version of justice. They promise a society that's what marked by Virtue, purity, and, and integrity. That's the promise, but they never deliver. It just gets worse and worse and worse. So once again, we see this idea that they're trying to do all of this and offer all of this apart from God. They don't have God as a part of their plan because in essence, they are the gods. They are the saviors of the world. David Kalsis goes on and says, each of the ideologies is based on a specific soteriology, a, a a concept or a theory of salvation. That is on a worked out theory promising deliverance to human beings from some fundamental evil that is viewed as the source of a broad range of human ills, including tyranny, oppression, anarchy, poverty, and so forth. As God's Word puts it, the mature ideology is a false revelation of creation, fall, and redemption. Don't miss what he's saying. A mature, well thought out, ideology, one that's been around for a while, like most of these, have some form of false revelation. What's the fall? How did we get where we are? How did things get so screwed up? And then how do we fix it? How do we get here? How did it get screwed up? And how are we going to make it better? How do we bring heaven to earth, so to speak? So all of these are really a form of religion, a, a, a false doctrine, a false religion, and none of them are new. This is what's amazing. The, the concept may be new. I, th I think the, the, the whole idea of, of uh, ideology was, was, came about in really the 1600s. It, it was a term created by a political scientist. So it may be a new term, but it's an old idea. It's been around since the fall. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. What did Satan say to Eve? Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, able to determine what's best for you. That's really what he was offering her. I love the way the Amplified Bible puts it. Your eyes will be opened. That is, you will have greater awareness and you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. What he's really offering her is an ideology, a way of thinking, a way of processing the world. You will have autonomy, self-rule, and independence from God. You'll be self-determining which is in essence what all of us want at the end of the day. And you'll have the right to create your own world and destiny. So this, this thing about ideologies is they've been around forever. And we go back to Judges 21, 25. Israel had no king, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They had a king, God, just like those four passages we started with. God rules over all, but they didn't want him to be their king, and so they all did what they wanted to do. That's the world in which we live. And every ideology is basically men propagating and promoting what they want, not what God wants. 
and what they deem best, not what God says is best. It's a different form of salvation, a different form of redemption. Even in Jesus' day, there were ideologies. I, I took some time this, this week just to go back and study a little bit about some of the, the religious sects that were alive and well in Jesus' day. Just listen to these and, and see if they don't ring familiar to you. You had the Sadducees, Sadduceeism. They were the liberals of their day. Why? Because they were primar primarily from the wealthy and the aristocratic class. They, they, they had power, prestige, and wealth. They were priests, so they represented God, but they had made peace with the culture, both the Greek and the Roman culture. They, they compromised. They made concessions. And they were the literalists who held the law in high regard. In other words, they, they put a high stock on the law, but they also compromised in many, many ways. And, and then you have the Pharisees. You know, we're very familiar with the Pharisees, right? Well, Phariseeism, these guys represented the conservatives of their day. They were academic elites. They were smart. They were wise. They were lawyers, theologians, scribes, scholars in, in terms of God's Word. So these were bright men. But when it came to law, they were contextualists. They, they made concessions with the law. They would t take the circumstances and say, well, this is what it said, but this is how we're going to apply it now. Loopholes, all kinds of workarounds. And they were strong critics of the culture, and they were ultimately separatists. That's what their very name means. Well, then you had another group that we're less familiar with, the Herodians, Herodianism. They were the progressives of their day. They were political act activists who hated any form of big government, either Jewish or Roman. And they were willing to compromise with Rome to get their way. They, they, they wanted to rule and reign, but they were willing to make concessions with Rome in order to have power. So they were progressive in their thoughts and their actions. And anything that threatened the status quo, they would eliminate. That's why they hated Jesus, because he threatened their status quo. And then you had zealots, the, 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 basically the extremists of their day. Uh, it, it's interesting that at least one of the disciples on Jesus' staff was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. Uh, these men were extremists. They were the revolutionaries, the radicals of their day. And they were anarchists who promoted the overthrow of the government. And they would do anything to accomplishment, including radical violence. Because liberty meant everything to them. They wanted liberty. And they were willing to fight for it. And violence was an acceptable strategy to them. And then finally you had the Essenes, Essenism. These were the secessionists, the escapists of their day that just wanted to get away from all of the horrible things associated with the culture. They were the separatists who distrusted all forms of big government. And so these people lived in communes, basically in a monastic lifestyle. And, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a remote area of the Judean desert in Qumran. And it was a place populated by these people, the, the, those who practice Essenism. And they avoided culture at all costs. So you see that even back in Jesus' day, there were all these radical ideologies. And Colin Harris says, what is distinctive about these parties is not the names they bear at any particular time, but the perspectives they represent at all times. As the human family responds to the issues and challenges of religious, social, and political life. Catch what he's saying. Society, human society, is trying to respond at all times to what's going on around them in their particular age. Our age is different than that of the first century, but we're still struggling with issues that we're trying to rectify and we're trying to reconcile. And, and, and so we look at them and we try to figure out what do we do? And I want to look at another passage of Scripture that gives some insight into how we as Christians should respond to the time in which we live and the ideologies that are permeating and pervading our society. Listen to what Paul writes to the Galatian believers. Again, Gentiles living in a pagan culture. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God. These are believers, but they're beginning to listen to some falsehood. You're turning away from God who called you to Himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, the gospel, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. 
So once again, you had people coming into the church propagating falsehood in the form of ideologies, religious ideologies that were contrary to what Jesus himself taught and what Paul had taught the Galatians. Listen to how Paul responds. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. If anybody comes to you and preaches a different form of salvation, a gospel contrary to that which we've taught, he needs to be cursed. He's anathema. He's to be treated as an outsider and as an enemy to the gospel. And I think that's just as true of these ideologies that are running rampant all around us because they all represent idolatry. They're all apart from God. And guys, here's what I want us to kind of wrap up as we, we come to a close in this lesson is that we are, I think, experiencing a reckoning for our failure to reconcile a lost people to God. We've not done our job. I'm not saying that we're going to redeem culture. But I do think that because we've not done our job, we are experiencing a reckoning of sorts. I want to look at just a few kind of poll results that, that show the state of religion in America. Look at church membership in, in America. From 1937 to 1998, 70% of Americans were members of local churches. Okay, 70%. 2018, it had dropped to 50%. I don't know what it is in 2021, but I guarantee it's less than that. It's dropping precipitously. Why? Because we're not doing our job. We're not reconciling lost people to a holy God. And so when you look at any surveys and you look at the census, the latest census, what you see is this, this category called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. It's those who are atheists, agnostics, they, they profess no religious affiliation. So when it comes to the list, are you, you know, a Christian, are you a Buddhist, are you a Muslim, are you Jewish, they, they click none, none of the above. They have no religious affiliation. They make up a quarter of the population in America right now, and it's growing in a, in an incredible, at an incredible rate. And it's mostly among the younger people in our culture. See, today, 43% of Americans are unchurched. Almost half of America is unchurched. 34% are dechurched. They used to go to church, but they don't anymore. And these numbers are rising all the time. And, and, and that's part of the problem we face is that we're no longer a religious nation. We once were, but we're not anymore. This is from The Atlantic. Again, a secular publication. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, Ideological intensity and fragmentation have risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. Again, this is a secular article basically saying that all these ideologies out there are masquerading as religions, but without religion. They, they don't have what it takes to bring an answer. They're, it's an America without God, so to speak. God has been pushed out of the culture. And the Barna Group gives us this assessment. The challenge with competing worldviews is that there are fragments of similarity to, to some Christian teachings. And some may recognize and latch on to these ideas, not realizing that they're distortions of biblical truths. The call for the church and its teachers and thinkers is to help Christians dissect popular beliefs or ideologies before allowing them to settle in their own ideology. See, we have an ideology as Christians. It's called the gospel. It's, it's a biblical worldview based on the scriptures. But if we're not careful, if we're not discerning, we're going to allow these other competing worldviews to infiltrate and begin to dilute and diminish the power of what we say we believe. So I want to wrap it up with this. I want to go to yet another passage of Scripture, and this is that little book called Jude, which comes right before the book of Revelation. It's one chapter long, but it is jam-packed with truth. And I want you to listen to what Jude says, because he's dealing with people who are also having to deal with falsehood, ideologies that have crept their way into the church. He says, these people scoff at things they do not understand. These false teachers, these 
people bringing in these false ideologies. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. He's trying to expose who these people are and the danger that they're doing. Well, who are they? Who are these people? They're false teachers. They're church attenders. They're in this local fellowship, but they're ungodly. We have that same problem in the church today. They're twisting the grace of God. They're taking the grace exhibited through Jesus Christ, and they're twisting it into something else, some other Messiah and gospel. They're propagating unbiblical beliefs. And one of the things you and I have to wake up to is that these ideologies are unbiblical at their core, and we have to be able to see it for what it is. We've got to recognize it. And we've got to, they were promoting a different kind of salvation, and we've got to see that. It may sound good, it may look good, but we've got to dig to the core and see what it's really saying. And they're offering something other than the truth. He says, they follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. He goes back to the Old Testament. He brings three different cases and uses those as illustrations. Here's what he's really saying without digging into the details of those passages. These people are driven by a warped sense of right and wrong. It's warped because it's not of God. It's not biblically based. They're motivated by justification disguised as justice. Justifying their own end, justifying their own ideas, and calling it justice. But again, whose justice? God's? No. Theirs. They promote rebellion in the guise of reformation. We're just trying to reform the culture, but in order to do it, they want to tear down everything in order to reconstruct everything, which makes it, in the end, destructive. And so he goes on and he says, these people eat with you in your fellowship meals. In other words, they fellowship with you. They come to church with you. They sit in the same pew with you. But he says, they're like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They're like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. He's going to give these five different definitions or descriptions of these people. They're like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. And then finally, they're like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds, and like wandering stars, doomed forever to the blackest darkness. These are incredibly descriptive terms. So, so what's he saying? Basically, he's saying none of them offer anything of value. They bear no fruit. See, all ideologies without God are like these things. They're hidden reefs. A hidden reef is something you can't see beneath the surface of the water. And because it's hidden, it's dangerous and deadly and will shipwreck not only the culture, but it'll shipwreck a church if we don't recognize it for what it is. They're like selfish shepherds. They look good, right? They look like shepherds. They're supposed to care for the sheep, but they're completely self-centered and selfish. It's all about them. They're clouds without rain. This one doesn't mean much to us, but if you lived in an agrarian society, rain clouds were important. And when you saw a cloud, you hoped it would bring rain. Well, guess what? A rainless cloud is basically useless. It looks promising, but it's disappointing. That's true of all of these ideologies. They're dead, fruitless trees. He describes them as dead and ripped up by the roots. They can't bear any fruit and therefore can bring no sustenance of any kind. They're incapable of it. He calls them wild waves. It makes me think of uh, the quote from Shakespeare that full of sound and fury signifying nothing. They're all bluster. They're, they're tossing up foam. They're, they're creating a lot of noise, but they bring nothing of value. And finally, they're wandering stars, which is another metaphor that we don't really understand because we have GPS on our phones. But in that day... The stars were how you got around. They guided your travels. He says, they're wandering stars. They're like a comet. They're like a planet that seems to be in a different place every time, and you can't guide your life by them. They're a lousy source of direction. See, if it's true back when Jude wrote, it's true today. And that's why this is so important. So I'll wrap up with what he wraps up, a call to remain faithful. He says, dear friends, you must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you, not only within the church but within the culture. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit within them. They are godless. 
But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. See, he gives us a whole different path to take. He tells us to pray. He tells us to wait. He tells us to to seek wisdom in the scriptures. He tells us to live out the lives we've been called to live as we wait for the coming promise that God has given us. And we're going to unpack this further next week when we talk about the kingdom and culture. How do you and I live in this culture? How do we impact it positively? It's not just sharing the gospel. That is our goal. That is our objective. That is our mission. But it's also to influence those around us who are outside of Christ. So here's your questions for this week, though. Why are Christians just as prone to allow an ideology to become idolatry in their lives? We do it all the time. And I want you to share from your own personal experience, maybe how you've done that in the past. Maybe you're doing it right now. You've allowed some ideology to become an idolatry in your life. When we hear the term false teacher, we tend to think of someone teaching heresy. But how could secular ideologies apply as well? People teaching falsehood in the form of truth that is impacting many within the fellowship. And finally, in what ways do today's ideologies act as substitutes for the gospel? And why do we fail to recognize them as what they are? Idolatry. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for opening our eyes through your scripture to the reality of falsehood that is all around us. Father, I know that not everyone who's involved in one of these ideologies is evil and godless and a tool of Satan, but many are. And many of us have been sucked into the lie because we've let it substitute for the truth. Open our eyes. Help us to see truth for what it is. Help us to see that salvation comes from you and you alone. Jehovah is salvation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And may we never lose sight of that as we wrestle in this age in which we live. Help us to be salt and light and help us, help us to be those who reconcile a lost and dying world to a holy and righteous God. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you guys next week for Lesson 10.